0: Welcome to Money for the Rest of us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 104. It's titled, Is It Possible to Win a Trade? Imagine you are shopping looking for a new pair of pants. At your favorite store you find two pairs you like. They are made of similar fabric and have a similar design. One cost $85 and is made in the USA. The other costs $50 and is made overseas. Which do you buy? According to an Associated Press, GFK poll, 67% of Americans would buy the cheaper pair of pants. 30% would buy the more expensive made in the USA pair. People in households earning $100,000 or more are no more likely to buy the expensive pair of pants than those in lower income households. So is it better to buy the more expensive American made pants? That is not an easy question to answer, and it's what we're going to explore in today's episode. Last August, August 2015, presidential candidate Donald Trump in a debate said, Our country is in serious trouble. We don't win anymore. We don't beat China in trade. We don't beat Japan with their millions and millions of cars coming into this country in trade. We can't beat Mexico at the border or in trade. How does a country win at trade? How do you even keep score? The U.S. ran close to an even trade balance through most of the 20th century up until the mid-1970s. That meant the value of imports roughly equaled exports. The exceptions were during and immediately following the First and Second World Wars when the U.S. ran a large trade surplus. The U.S. adherence to the gold standard ensured the U.S. did not run significant trade deficits. Why is that? Under the gold standard, if the U.S. ran a large trade deficit with households and businesses importing more goods and services than they exported, then foreign holders of U.S. dollars had two choices. They could invest those dollars in the U.S., or they could exchange them for their own currency at fixed exchange rates at their country's central bank. The foreign central bank could then exchange the accumulated dollars for gold at the Federal Reserve, the U.S. Central Bank, for $35 per ounce. A large demand to convert U.S. dollars into gold gold, would cause the U.S. government's gold reserves to leave the country. The only way the U.S. could stop the outflow of gold was to raise interest rates so that foreign holders of its currency would want to invest in the country rather than cash in those dollars for gold. Throughout the 50s and 60s, the supply of U.S. dollars rose faster than the gold supply. The primary way the dollar supply increases, as we talked about in episode 94, how money is created and destroyed, the dollar supply increases through bank lending. So, in the 50s and 60s, with the rise in private sector debt, the dollar supply increased, and so that puts upward pressure on the gold price, which was fixed at $35 an ounce for dollar conversion purposes. So you had this pressure on gold price, you had some inflationary pressure, and finally that pressure got so great that in 1971, the U.S. abandoned the gold standard and allowed the dollar to freely float in value relative to gold in other currencies. This was a monumental change. And within a few years of abandoning the gold standard, the U.S. began to run a persistent trade deficit. That means on a net basis, U.S. households and businesses receive goods and services in exchange for dollars that are not backed by anything. And those dollars are primarily created out of thin air, as we learned in episode 94, through The lending activity of banks. Countries send U.S. households, businesses, real wealth in the form of goods and services in exchange for electronic digits with no intrinsic value. So by that scorecard, the U.S. is winning a trade. We get real wealth, real physical goods, real services, and we're essentially sending them fiat currency, this money that has no intrinsic value, that it can be created out of thin air through bank lending. It's just digits. And so isn't that almost like getting something for nothing? By that token, we are winning at trade. Then why should the U.S. worry about a trade deficit if we're receiving real physical wealth in exchange for money that can be created out of nothing? The problem arises because households and businesses need income in order to pay for imports. Or they at least need income to qualify for bank loans so they can pay for those imports. And how do households and businesses get income? They get income when other households and businesses spend money. Every dollar spent is someone else's income. When a business spends a dollar to pay for a worker's salary, that dollar is the worker's income. And then when that worker spends that same dollar at a business to buy groceries, then that dollar becomes that business's income. So what that means is across the entire domestic economy, the total amount of income received by households and businesses in a given year equals the total amount of money spent by households and businesses. Now, this assumes the country runs an even trade balance, Balance and the federal budget is also balanced. So if those if trade is in balance and the federal budget is balanced, then all the dollars spent in a given year by households and businesses equals the income received by households and businesses. And that's why when the US calculates gross domestic product, which is a measure of output, what was produced in terms of goods and services in a given year they can calculate it two ways they can calculate it based on the amount that was spent or they can base they can calculate the output based on the, the national income that year and they roughly equal each other what happens when a country runs a trade deficit and its federal budget is balanced so the country is importing more than it's exporting which means households and businesses need to find the money to buy those imports, and because spending, total spending within the domestic economy by households and businesses has to equal what was received in income by households and businesses, then those businesses and households, in order to buy those imports, have to find the money, and the only way they can find the money is they can tap prior year's income that has been saved, or they can spend future year's income by borrowing money from banks that they will need to pay back at some point with interest. And so if we're running a persistent trade deficit, but the federal budget is balanced, that's an unsustainable situation because every year households and businesses have to go find the money from prior year savings or they have to borrow it in order to pay for those inc- that, that deficit to cover the trade deficit. The only way a country can run a persistent trade deficit is if the federal government also runs a budget deficit. There's this concept called the twin deficits. And it became, in fact, I wrote a paper about it back for my senior thesis back in the 80s. Because this was a new phenomenon because the gold standard ended in the 70s. And by the 80s, we had a a burgeoning budget deficit and a trade deficit, and that is not a coincidence. A budget deficit is when the government spends more than it receives in tax revenue, and tax revenue for the government is, that's its income. So when the government spends more than it receives in tax revenue, that excess spending flows to households and businesses, and that gives them the additional income they need in order to buy imports without dipping into prior year savings or future income by borrowing from banks. In fact, it's the Americans' appetite for imports that can help push the federal government into a budget deficit situation. What starts first? is: Does the government run a budget deficit or is it driven by households and businesses? Households and businesses are ultimately the one that determine budget deficits based on their actions. They are, it's a dance, but households and businesses lead the dance. When those households and businesses significantly increase their purchases of imports, and there is not an offsetting increase in exports, and over time, domestic businesses get hurt as their income falls because they're just not selling as much because people are buying it cheaper overseas. Lower income for those businesses means they're paying less in taxes. At the same time, these businesses might be laying off workers, and those employees or former employees are then paying less in taxes, and they're also collecting unemployment benefits. The combination of lower tax revenues and a higher social safety net spending leads to a higher federal budget deficit. I talked about this in episode 42, all countries are insolvent. And we talked about how it's households and businesses that drive budget deficits. And they drive it primarily by the desire to save. The only way that households and businesses can save collectively is if somebody is providing those savings by running a deficit. And that typically is the federal, the federal government. At the same time, the only way a country can run a persistent trade deficit is for the same reason. The federal government has to run a budget deficit. As a consumer, should you purchase then the cheaper imported pants or the more expensive pair that's made in the USA? It's a difficult cho- choice. Purchasing the imported pants contributes to the U.S. trade deficit. Which in turn contributes to the federal budget deficits, and that increases the national debt. I'm not going to talk about the national debt today, but that—that that is, that—that's phenomena. The budget deficit each year results in an increase in the national debt, and the budget deficit occurs. It's an outgrowth of the trade deficit. Consumers making the choice of purchasing the cheaper pair of pants, collectively, over millions and millions and billions of goods. And it's also that budget deficit is a function of the desire of households and businesses to save, as I discussed in episode 42. But on the other hand, when we buy the cheaper import, we are trading fiat currency, currency that has no intrinsic value, And we're getting something real for it. So by that token, we're winning at trade. But in terms of a persistent trade deficit that leads to these other issues, perhaps we're losing. Let's take these principles and apply them to a different setting. In episode 65, I discussed the Greek financial crisis. And I shared some statistics. In 1995, Greece ran an even trade balance. But beginning in 1999... It started to run a current account deficit, which is primarily made up of an imports of goods and services over exports. It also includes some associated income, but a current account deficit is pretty much equivalent to a trade deficit. And so that current account deficit ballooned from 4% of gross domestic product to 15% by 2008. So Greece is running a huge trade deficit, and, and partly it's because interest rates fell, and there was pent-up demand by Greek citizens to, to buy nice stuff to get German car imports as well as other things. So, as we've learned, when a nation imports more than its exports, it has to cover the shortfall somehow. It has to tap prior year savings, it has to borrow money to pay it, or... The government has to run a budget deficit. What happened in Greece is first, they were able to borrow for the first time. Greece, well, not for the first time, but suddenly credit became much more available. And so debt balance accelerated pretty dramatically. But then the economy slowed. So non-performing bank loans as a percent of total loans went from 4.7% in 2008, the 34 percent in 2014. So you had this huge trade deficits, which were funded primarily by bank borrowing. But then, after the when the financial crisis hit in 2008, then Greek citizens weren't able to pay much of those loans, and so the banks started to to go belly up, essentially. And businesses started laying off workers. So unemployment went from 7.3% to 25%. And So the social safety net spending went up. And as unemployment went up, tax revenues went down. And the the Greek government had to bail out the banks. And as a result, the government's budget deficit to GDP went from 5.7% in 2007 to 16% in 2009. Now, this is a country that's a part of the European Union that's supposed to keep that budget deficit to GDP under 3%. So how did Greece cover the shortfall? They can't print the money because they're part of the European Union. They use the euros, so they don't have the ability just to create money to cover the shortfall. So they had to borrow it from their European neighbors and the International Monetary Fund. And, and essentially got bailed out and now have all this debt that needs to be paid. But Greece continues to run a trade deficit with its other European neighbors. And as a result, there is no way that Greece will be able to pay off its debt because the only way it's going to be able to get that additional income as part of the European Union is if it runs a trade Surplus; It has to export more than it imports so it can bring in that additional income to service its debt. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. The Prell and I recently had dinner with some friends who run a retail business. They have multiple stores and an online shop. And they recently used Shopify to better manage their inventory so they could ship online orders out of all of their stores instead of the warehouse. It helped them get a higher conversion rate on their website because of Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the, did we just hit a million order stage? Shopify's there to help you grow, whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs. Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers, just like it did for our friends, with the Internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash david, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash david now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash david. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in my profession, I've seen how important it is to get quality candidates to interview. And LinkedIn can help you with that. It's not just a job board. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. So hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Post your job for free at linkedin.com David. That's linkedin.com David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Now, how does that differ from individual states within the United States? Well, here in the US, states have to run balanced budgets. And so if there is no there's not the ability to it, let, let's say, for example, if a state imports more goods and services, its households and businesses, imports more goods and services, than it exports then the shortfall needs to be covered. How is the shortfall covered? Well, the the locals, the state government can't run a deficit. If there's a shortfall, the state governments have to cut their budget. That's exactly what's happening this year in Wyoming and in Alaska, and I'm sure in other states, but particularly those states that are tied to commodity prices. So how is the shortfall covered? Well, in here we have a sovereign nation, so the government can, through paying Social Security benefits, by paying welfare benefits, and other benefits that the states receive from the federal government, that helps to balance things out. In addition, you have banks across state lines. So if a state citizen isn't able to to make their loan payments, well, the the banks suffer. But because the banks operate across state lines, they're able to overcome those things. So a state is very different because you have the federal government that ties everything together and provides that that support. Ultimately, the European Union struggles because you have independent states that have shared currency, or independent nations that have shared currency, but their banks tend to be localized within the various countries, and the, the government essentially... It's like the flex. It's like having states, but without the flexibility, because there's not a supranational government overseeing the various nations. They're still independent sovereign nations. Now you might be saying, David, this is way more complicated than what I learned when I studied foreign trade in an economics course in high school or college. There, you might have learned about free trade. You were probably introduced to some theories. By David Ricardo, where he showed that two countries could grow their economies faster if they each specialized in producing the good and service in which they had a comparative advantage and then traded that good or service with the other country. And by comparative advantage, Ricardo meant specializing in producing the good or service where a country is more productive in terms of its output per unit of labor relative to another country. So, for example, Ricardo showed if Portugal is more productive than England in producing both cloth and wine, but Portugal is twice as productive than England in producing cloth, but three times more productive than England in producing wine, then both countries are better off economically if Portugal produces wine and England cloth. And this is, this is sort of how this comparative advantage is. Kind of, it was an incredibly powerful theory. It suggests Portugal should shut down its cloth-making industry and focus on wine, while England should give up on grapes. The problem with this simplistic analysis, which is taught in most modern economic textbooks, is it doesn't apply to the real world. What we're discussing in Money for the Rest of Us is things that apply to the real world. So, for example, the theory of comparative advantage doesn't take into account that technology changes and there's, a, and there's a learning curve. What if Portugal, instead of shutting down its cloth production, continued to incubate it and develop machines to produce cloth more rapidly, eventually becoming more productive than England in cloth making? What if consumers taste change and people prefer synthetic cloth and England is not as productive at making? What if the country is more productive because it degrades its environment or simply has lower labor costs because it pays substandard wages? China is currently the world's largest lingerie producer, producing 2.9 billion bras in 2014, 60 percent of the world's total, according to the consultant firm Frost and Sullivan. 350 million of those bras were made in Guarao, G U R A O, I don't know how to say that, a town in southern province of Guangdong. Local officials call it the town of underwear, according to a recent article in The Economist. In 2010, Greenpeace reported that fabric dyeing plants in Goraro had severely polluted the water, making it unfit to drink. The Economist also reported that you know, with Chinese wages having risen 12 percent a year since 2001, many lingerie workmakers that such, for global brands such as Victoria's Secret they they have shifted production to lower wage countries like Thailand. Vietnam in Myanmar, and that has left the underwear town, Guara, with less work and polluted water. Factories in Guara are hoping to compete by increasing productivity through technological upgrades to their plants. They want to rely more on machines and less on people if they can attract the needed capital investment. But the town is suffering because they specialize in underwear. Economist James K. Galbraith, in his book The Predator State, in a chapter titled There Is No Such Thing as Free Trade, points out another problem with simplistic free trade assumptions. Quote, given three countries and three commodities, it's not obvious that each country will only be the relatively most efficient producer of exactly one good. And then what? Does the country that has no comparative advantage produce nothing? Does it refuse to trade? If its comparative advantage lies in exporting labor and closing up shop, is this acceptable? The textbooks do not say. The actual world has 220 countries and thousands of distinct commodities. In this world, the one we actually live in, that calculation of comparative advantage is intractable. Rather than specialize in a narrow bundle of products and services, countries and regions are better off diversifying. Galbraith points out that countries who, due to climate in its history, produce bananas, coffees and cocoa, and little else, are invariably poor. Why is that? Because prices for those goods are extremely sensitive to supply. When supply increases, worldwide prices fall, reducing incomes for those countries. Countries that are heavy exporters of oil have learned this lesson recently. The second reason countries whose primary exports are agricultural commodities stay poor is good land and water are in limited supply, so these countries can't expand production indefinitely, which means they need to diversify their economic exports, even if they don't have a comparative advantage. Countries who diversify their economic exports are better able to withstand economic shocks, including when demand for products falls due to changes in fashion and technology. So what do we do with all this information? Do we, which pair of pants do we buy? Well, if you're in Greece, you should probably buy the pants and clothes made in Greece because there the trade deficit needs to be narrowed. It gets it needs to move over to a trade surplus because that's the only way Greece will be able to pay off its debt. If you live in a country that has currency sovereignty where your federal government controls the currency, you have the ability to print money, the government can run a budget deficit indefinitely, and a trade deficit indefinitely, there you have more flexibility. Perhaps then you buy the foreign pair of pants because it's cheaper, but recognize by buying the domestic clothes and the domestic goods and services, you can diversify your economy, you strengthen your own economy, you build your own jobs. And sometimes when you're buying the cheaper foreign goods, it's because they've cut corners in terms of environmental degradation in terms of substandard wages but sometimes the best goods are made overseas some of the best solar panels are made in china and so it's not always an either or situation and that's why it can be take years to negotiate these free trade agreements trade is never free there's always conditions and tariffs oftentimes to protect industries within a country as they incubate them as they try to work up the technology and the learning code the learning curve so they have a a diversified manufacturing and economic base at its heart trade is good it does help the global economy but you have to look at conditions and it isn't it's definitely not free and it always always depends on that particular. Country circumstances. So there's not an easy answer on which pants to buy. Sometimes I buy the domestic pants, sometimes I buy the foreign clothes. You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's also where you can sign up for my insider's guide. And I'll email those show notes to you weekly. I also include a weekly summary article of the podcast as, uh, as well as other valuable content. If you're a US based listener, if it's easier, you can just text the word insider to the number. 44222, two, two, and there you can sign up. If you would like additional help with your investing, additional guidance, help setting your long term asset allocation, help understanding what's going on with the economy, what's going on with valuations, how to adjust that allocation based on regime changes and based on economic recessions, and should you reduce risk, when should you potentially? increase risk if you would like an investment mentor so that you can ask questions to get answers you can get that at the money for the rest of us hub i run that premium membership site just for a small subset of listeners to money for the rest of us those that want a little more help and guidance you can get more information on that at money for the rest of us hub.com it's something you can try for a couple of months to see if you like it you can pay a monthly fee or if you want to get 15% off the monthly rate, you can get pay for an annual fee. And if you don't like it, after 30 days, I'll refund your money. And that is at moneyfortherestofushub.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I have not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment guidance at all. This is simply general education on money, investing, and in the economy. Have a great week.